chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. What is the food of love? Is it perhaps food? This month, we're going to be talking about all things food and cooking and baking and chefs and how that relates to the classic love story. Janelle, are you so excited? Eliza, honestly, I could not be more excited. If you know my family well, you know that our uh, shared hobby is food and eating and cooking and having other people eat our food. So <laughs> this is this is like 100% of my wheelhouse. How are you feeling about it? Um, well, in my family, I would say the hobby, it's funny, it's not necessarily cooking, but it is feeding people. We, we constantly seem very concerned that everyone around us is starving to death at all times. And it's very important <laughs> that we fix that personally in this moment right away. Uh, so yeah, food to me is definitely a love language. Yeah, I mean, we rarely get to say on this podcast that Shakespeare was wrong, but I think we can say that. Shakespeare was wrong. Food is the food of love. You are <laughs> Food right. is the food of love. I mean, music's great, but like food's, it's food's more important. Yes, and shout out to our patrons who know the real truth, who voted for food over music this month. As the yes, yes, this is a Patreon-picked theme for the month, so um, if you are interested in picking themes for the next months or movies or whatnot, you should go check out our Patreon and become a part of that discussion, because there was quite a discussion to be had about where we should go next this month. Great, so we're kicking it off with a classic, I'd say, a classic neither one of us had seen before, miraculously. Yeah, yeah we are uh, starting with possibly the most important of all the food groups, pizza. Uh, I feel like as a New Jerseyan, I can, I'm a, you know, in a position to make that official pronouncement that pizza is the most important. So uh, we're heading a little north of me up into Connecticut, and we're gonna go check out Mystic. All right, let's hit him with a Google summary. Here we go. Mystic Pizza, the year of our Lord, 1988. Mystic Pizza charts the lives and loves of three unforgettable waitresses in a little town called Mystic. For sexy Daisy Arujo, played by Julia Roberts, her sensible sister Kat, played by Annabeth Gish, and their wisecracking friend Jojo, played by Lily Taylor, the summer after high school is a summer they'll never forget. Slinging pizza at a local restaurant, the three girls share their hopes, dreams, and plans for escaping their small town. Well, Eliza, I think you know what question I'm going to ask. And that question is, what does Lorna put in the pizza? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. What is Mystic Pizza really about? Well, you know, it was funny because going into this, obviously, I hadn't seen it. And I realized I knew very little about the movie, even though I'd, I'd always sort of been aware of it. Uh, so I didn't know what to expect. And I think in the end, the movie is really about female friendships. And you know that that's I always love when that is sort of what a movie is about. But it's also just sort of about that kind of time period in your life where you're making big transitions, but everything's going slowly. And it's frustrating and confusing and scary. And you need to rely on the women around you in order to get through that. Um, and also there are some guys involved in like maybe romance, but that's not really the important part of it. Yeah, it is. A, I was really pleasantly surprised by this movie because uh, in our experience thus far, listeners, films from the 80s don't have a great track record with us. Kind of before 2000 is a kind of a tough area with the exception of Roxanne. Movies from the 80s yeah. are a little tough. 
But this movie really comes through, I think, as you said, as one that really highlights female friendships and sister relationships and how women support each other um, through, around, and in spite of romantic relationships. Even though I have to say that the romantic relationships that they display in the film are also really interesting in their own right and take turns that I was surprised by. So that was also a pleasant discovery. Yeah, I actually, I have to say, there's sort of, you know, there's three women and then there's these three, you know, romantic relationships. Each one of them kind of has this one relationship through the summer. Um, And their each relationship, of course, is a different thing. But sometimes it feels a little bit like they're checking off boxes when that happens. And this didn't feel like that. Mm -hmm. This just felt like sort of, you know, three different things that three different people were going through uh, that all kind of complemented each other pretty well, which is sort of nice. Um, I would say I wasn't my one biggest thing is that I wasn't like super invested in any one of the relationships. You know, like there was one that I obviously disliked from the start and we'll get into that and still disliked at the end. Um, and there was one that I assumed would end happy and it did. And one that I wasn't sure what would happen. And I was actually pleasantly surprised with where it went. But there was no point where I was like, oh, God, if these two don't get back together, I'm just going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of want that from a rom-com, right? Like you want to really be rooting for the couple and i would have been perfectly happy if any one of these girls had walked away from their relationship Uh, yeah but i know it's it's not heavy on the like real um sweeping romance feelings but it does have that quality that we oftentimes run into with these rom-coms where it's it's more of like a young woman's survival guide to dating and marriage and it definitely is sort of playing with the female empowerment of the 80s as well you know there's this one scene it's supposed to be funny but there is this one scene where one of the girls is yelling at her boyfriend and she says i don't have to marry an asshole it's the 80s i could choose to not marry you if i think you're an asshole you know, and, and it's funny because it's just this, you know, this young couple having a fight. But it also there is something to be said about these girls coming from a small town where there's clearly pressure on them to get married and make babies, all of that. And they're kind of looking at whether or not they have other options in a way that maybe their mothers didn't. And although like in that moment, I just remember thinking to myself, shaking my head like, oh, baby, oh, baby girl, you don't even know what's ahead in the decades to come. <laughs> Donald Trump one day will be the president. I'm sorry to inform you. <laughs> But <laughs> yeah, assholes aren't um, going anywhere. Um, but I think that that gives us a good um, pathway to transition to thinking about these three women, these three young women and their relationships. So maybe let's start with that couple you're referring to. That's um, Jojo and her fiance, boyfriend, husband to be Bill. Well, before we get into the actual content of the um, of their relationship in the movie, I did just want to say I looked up everyone's ages in this movie, as you know, I like to do. Um, And this was the one where the age difference between the two actors rubbed me the wrong way, because there's one couple, which we'll talk about in a bit, where there's supposed to be an age difference. That's sort of the big problem. So it makes sense that they cast a quite young actress and an older actor. Um, And then the um, another couple where he's supposed to be a few years older and he is for Jojo and Bill. Jojo is played by a 21-year-old actress, 20-year-old actress, depending on when during the year they filmed. And Bill is played by a 29-year-old actor. And the implication is that they're all supposed to be about the same age and have just left school in the last few years. And they're like high school sweethearts. And it just really bothered me that the film felt the need to cast this like 20-year-old, just barely not a teenager, cute young actress, and then give her an almost 30-year-old male counterpart to play her 20-year-old boyfriend. Mm. It's good you look that up because I honestly would not have guessed that at all. Like the performances that they turn in here feel fairly even-footed, but it also speaks to, I think, an inequality in casting in general that women 
after a certain age, like a 29 year old woman would not have been cast as a 20 year old woman. Let's no. just say that, except for in very rare cases. I mean, that's why in the cases where you do see actresses who can act in young roles past the age of 30, it's the subject of a BuzzFeed listicle, right? That's how unusual <laughs> it is. So yeah, I just, I, I immediately was sort of like, I think he looks older and I looked it up and he is quite older than her despite playing, you know, essentially like a 20 year old dude. So that was a little weird. But that being said, moving on to the actual plot content of their relationship. I actually have to say that I kind of loved their relationship. I certainly, I would say it's predictable, but very entertaining. Um, that begins with their wedding, which promptly does not happen. And then they spend the rest of the summer fighting about whether or not they should get married again. And in the end, they do. Spoiler alert. But the big fight of it is that she's not sure she's ready to settle down. She really likes being with him. She really likes sneaking around and messing around with him. Um, And she probably loves him, but she's just not ready to get married. And she's not sure how she feels about commitment. Whereas he wants her to settle down and be his wife and make a commitment and get married in a church and all of those sort of traditional trappings. Which is, I mean, in some ways, I guess it's a little bit of a flipping it on its head. You know, we always have the that kind of trope of the woman desperately trying to get the man to propose to her and the man not being ready. But in another way, I think it still sort of falls into a lot of things we've seen and that the man wants the wife to live a traditional sort of female role and the woman's not sure if she's ready for that or if that's even what she wants. Yeah, I think there, what I liked about it is that there's an inversion in the power of the relationship, like you said, that that he is sort of the one begging for domesticity, not the woman, which is a trend that would come into for, into the fore in the late. It was women were demanding domesticity mm-hmm. and settling down despite their careers. And in this case, Jojo doesn't really even have a career. She's a waitress at a pizza joint, right? And maybe one day right. she wants to own the Mystic Pizza. That's maybe an ambition of hers that gets brought up. But for her, it's mostly about she's really interested in sex and her own sexuality at this time. So she's really invested in like, like you said, sneaking around with Bill and sort of just being fun and flirty and frisky. And he calls her out for, for sexualizing him, for just wanting him for sex. And that's not meeting his emotional needs. And he has a really frank conversation with her about that. Although he goes about it in a really shitty way by painting Nympho on his boat, which, yeah, she was right to call him out for being an asshole. That was another thing I like. She calls him out for being an asshole. She yeah. didn't just get hurt about it and run away. She called him out. She started a big fight. Well, and then he apologizes, too. And then he apologizes. Exactly. He goes back. He apologizes. He acknowledges what he did wrong. And the scene, I think, where it gets really complex, like you say, is one of the last scenes uh, is the two of them sitting in a truck. And you're not sure what the context of it is at first. And JoJo's talking about, listen, I just want to be clear with you that, like, I know what I want. And I just want to be clear that nothing has changed except my name. And then it becomes clear that she and Bill have gotten married as the as the video pans out and Bill mm-hmm. repeats back, yes, the only thing that's changed is your name. And on the one hand, that's like, oh yeah, that's great. Okay, so she's they're having this marriage on JoJo's terms in a sense. Like she's agreed to get married, but she's doing it her way. But the whole fact that she changed her name and mm-hmm. caved to domesticity actually is a big deal. Yeah, the, the whole storyline, and I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, um, but I think the whole storyline is about this sort of sense of feeling trapped into a particular life because you just don't have other options. And it's not a bad life. You know, I, I think she does, she certainly likes, and I do think she loves Bill, but... You know, she can't figure out how to get out of Mystic. She talks about, you know, I have options. I could I could go to college. I could get a business degree and I could take over this pizza, sh- you know, this pizza parlor. 
but you kind of get the the idea in that scene that she probably isn't going to go to college. She probably isn't going to get a business mm-hmm. degree. Yes, maybe mm-hmm. she could take over the pizza shop, but she probably will do that without particular business training. She'll just do it with the training of the woman who currently owns the pizza shop. You know, it's this sort of you are stuck in the patterns of those that came before you. And part of that is this getting married very young to your high school sweetheart having the, you know, reception at the local place with everyone there, you know, in their Sunday best, and then just turning around and going back home again. And again, none of those things are bad, but I think the movie is trying to to show the the sort of stuck-in-a-cornerness of it all. Yeah, I think you're right. And one of the things subtextually around everything that you're saying there that's happening in the background of this movie is that um, the movie makes a very specific choice here to make the three women of Portuguese descent, mm-hmm. uh, which is common in these fishing towns in um, in New England. But one of the things that they kind of show very subtly is that Jojo is a first generation American. Her parents came over from Portugal. They speak mm-hmm. Portuguese. They're more traditional than Daisy and Kat's parents, who are second generation Portuguese Americans. So there's also this implication that in some sense, like Jojo is more stuck than Daisy and Kat because she's a first gen American and mm-hmm. she's got immigrant parents, which is really intriguing because it's never explicitly said, but it's all part of sort of how her character is presented to us. Yeah, it is there. Um, I have to say I was a little conflicted about how I felt about the choice to make them Portuguese immigrants, um, because when I looked into the background of this movie, the woman who wrote the movie is a... Uh, white American from a white American family who was on vacation in Mystic when she was inspired to write this and then wrote the story about the locals, many of whom, as you say, are Portuguese in these kind of seaside towns. But I couldn't find evidence of any Portuguese people working on the movie. And that doesn't mean there weren't any, but certainly not the writer, the director, any of the sort of lead producers. And there were times that the, the immigrant blue-collar population in the story felt very real. And there were also a few times where I felt like, "Mm, this is a white person's interpretation of a non-white person's experience of New England. You know, and there's an argument to be made about whether a Portuguese person is is white or not. So, you know, understanding that Hispanic is a a weird sort of middle line there in American culture. But the immigrant versus not immigrant thing, I think, struck me a couple times where it didn't have the real authenticity that you get in some movies where you like know someone was writing this about their own experience. Yes, let me just crack my knuckles here, crack, crack, as a, a person who studies whiteness and portrayals of white femininity, particularly that this part of the film is really bizarre, Mm -hmm. especially because in my opinion, as a cultural historian, it's part of this larger trend in the eighties where there was a real interest in uh, rediscovering the quote unquote ethnic white, right? Ethnic Europeans. So, you know, looking at, for example, Eastern Europe, people who are of Eastern European Jewish descent, people who are of Italian descent, people Mm -hmm. who are of um, otherwise Eastern European descent. Right. And in this case, they're using the Portuguese, Uh, which is really an underrepresented sort of ethnic white Mm -hmm. in the U.S. They're Portuguese, Spaniards, Italians. They're all part of a group in the U.S. context, at least, that we could call um, 
not quite whites, mm-hmm. uh, where you're not meeting sort of the standard for waspiness. And oh boy, are we going to talk about that when we get to Daisy? <laughs> because there is a scene that exemplifies this perfectly. Maybe I'll talk about it in a minute. They're not quite that uh, white uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but they're also not black, indigenous, or Latinx, right? They don't have uh, the, any of that background. Mm-hmm. But the film kind of uses that that cachet, like you're talking about, of being immigrants of being otherized in this small town for being Portuguese as a way to like highlight these girls economic status Mm -hmm. but what's weird about it is this is clearly a movie of the 80s but they're really dealing with these not quite white populations in a way that's more reflective of like the 50s and 60s so it's a very strange artifact in this way it's clearly written by people who are reflecting on a much earlier time and a much different understanding of what being white yeah. in the U.S. and especially in New England was like. Yeah, no, it definitely, it was, it, it again, it didn't have that same kind of authenticity. And I there were moments that I liked what it added to the movie, you know, having this conversation about the small town girls who don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of options, and then they do intermingle with a few of these wealthy white wasps who come into town, you know, just for 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 the the sightseeing and the bouginess of it all which is certainly very true of that area of Connecticut there are a lot of very impoverished communities and very wealthy communities and they all mm-hmm. sit right next to each other right like that is an accurate depiction of Connecticut certainly in the 80s 90s even today um so you know those things i think that those are stories worth telling but it's still helpful if you actually have someone who's experienced the part of the story you're telling involved in the telling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, big, big indicator for me, like you said, is that if you look into the background of the Portuguese uh, population in New England, actually Portuguese populations are more concentrated in places like Rhode Island and Southern Massachusetts and actually not really at all in Connecticut, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah, right? Mystic <laughs> itself is not known specifically for a Portuguese population. Um, and I say that as someone who has been to Mystic and of course, course like there is a working class population and that working class population does have immigrants or second and third generation um americans of course as any you know working class population does but mystic's a a really white town (laughs) like it's it's pretty white Even the working class people are pretty white in Mystic, Connecticut. Well, and this is why I want to turn now to talking about Daisy. Because, Eliza, that scene where they all go to the pub and the wasps come in to go, (laughs) I don't know, like poor people watching and they start playing pool is like something I'm going to show to my students to be like, this is how whiteness operates in the U.S. Let me show you how whites (laughs) subjugate other whites in very particular ways. Because you see these Portuguese American kids, right? Who are what the beautiful and brilliant hosts of the podcast There's Aid Kit would call spicy white. So <laughs> let's call them spicy mayo. Then the extra no fat homemade mayo comes in from the waspy end of town and they clash. And it is the funniest goddamn thing I've ever seen. I was laughing the whole time when these waspy girls were like, oh my God, do you see those Portuguese girls? They're poor and they have curly hair and they look swarthy to me. Not the swarthy, <laughs> curly haired people. Well, my favorite thing about that scene is right at the start, you know, the the main gang all get there and they send someone up to the bar to get them a round of beers. And then these four wasps walk in and the guys turn to the girls and they're like, what can I get you? And one of the girls goes, I don't know, a white wine. And like 
the whole room stops, right? Like that's everything you need to know. These people are at a dive bar ordering white wine. And then this is a subtle thing, but I thought it was so funny. It's given to them in like beer glasses. I mean, they're small beer glasses, but they're essentially beer glasses. And the white wine is like almost to the top. It's essentially three, Mm -hmm. three glasses of wine in a single cup. And the girls are just holding it up, staring at their glasses. Like what the hell did you just hand me? And then they all compete in various bar games to demonstrate their like competency as working class people I guess right like stereotypical desirable for some reason waspy white boy from the 80s movies I don't know why but anyway so he comes into this bar and he's gonna prove that he belongs in this working class dive bar (laughs) by throwing darts okay great I guess he's proved himself Daisy is impressed anyway she raises a very arched eyebrow then they all move to play billiards oh boy The working class people are going to show you up at billiards. Way to go slumming, kids. And then Daisy comes over and the waspy girls somehow view like the sexuality of her body as being expressed in playing billiards well, which is also somehow wrapped up in her working class background. There's a lot of signifiers going on here. And all I could think was like, wow, the 80s really hurt white people in like a really horrible way. Like the 80s hurt everyone. But I did not, I don't, I guess the history books didn't show me how deeply, deeply the class anxieties hurt people. The spicy mayos and the fat-free mayos were conflicted and they were fighting and it was horrible. But seriously, what was it about the 80s that made everyone have class war? It's bizarre. Like, Reagan, what did you do? I mean, I think there is something to be said for class war becoming more culturally evident when you have a big economic boom that also is accompanied by a pretty big economic recession, depending on what class you're in, right? Like there were a lot of people who, especially in the late 80s, as they were nearing the 90s, which is when this movie takes place, are really starting to make a lot of money in new. But then you also have a quite hefty working class that still hasn't recovered from the recession of the 70s. And you have, you know, an expanding um, media presence. You have, you know, movies and TV and magazines and all these things that are so readily available by this time that it's very visually evident as well. And so I think that the conversation was really brought to the forefront. But you get a lot of movies like this. You know, you there's how many fucking 80s movies are there that have the, you know, the evil character is some preppy white wasp guy who, who like mm-hmm. goes to Harvard and wears polo shirts. Like, why did that become such a clearly understandable trope that it was in every fucking movie for a decade? I'm guessing it's like that guy represented every like white collar workers boss, you know, right. You know what I mean? And so it was like this figure that people could wrap up all of their class rage into. But that's what I think is so interesting about what you're saying too, though, is that it feels like this really clear sort of like white resentment about Mm -hmm. class. Um, Especially given that again, like we're talking about spicy whites versus like waspy whites. And Mm -hmm. then like other parts of of the kind of like nexus of racism and class warfare do not come into the analysis of this film like at all. Like, for example, Charlie's family has Portuguese maids, which made me sort of wonder, like, are we in an alternate universe where all of New England, like the entire working class are Portuguese Americans? Like, how does this I'm so what? Well, and it was so interesting because like they really made took the effort to make that point in that scene because up until uh-huh. then the relationship between Daisy and Charlie clearly he's like a rich kid who's slumming it here, you know, in the small town for the summer in between gigs at Harvard and she's the poor local, but you don't they don't like push that the difference is that he's like a white white and she's a spicy white. 
uh, really, until you get to that scene where they're at his parents' house and his grandparents or aunt and uncle, whatever they are, are like, ah, oh, yes, and this is our Portuguese maid. You know, our last Portuguese maid didn't even speak English. They're so hard to train. <laughs> and it was right. it was jarring because there had not been that kind of thing happening in the movie up until this point. And, like, they just as easily could have had the maid be another poor local girl who knew Daisy, but, like, that was the extent of it. But they wanted to make the race discussion happen, so they, like, shove it in your face all of a sudden and then in that moment then she and charlie have this whole fight where she's like oh i see you were just bringing your portuguese girlfriend home to meet your parents and like no matter what they do she's being played by julia roberts this is a very visually white woman (laughs) and the idea Mm -hmm. of him like picking the most white passing girl in town to come piss off his parents is a little confusing if that's what she's accusing him of also sidebar this just makes me laugh so hard because of course like we're in new england and yet there's a scene where Julia Roberts says, amen, to the camera in the thickest Georgia accent I've ever heard in my life. And I laughed so hard. I was like, sure, sure, Jan. Yes, thank you. This is Portuguese-American Connecticut, Julia Roberts. <laughs> well, again, this is what a couple of like wealthy white people think that religious Catholics of the Northeast act like. So they were like, I don't know, what do religious people sound like? And then I guess came up with Southern. And listen, I'm the first to admit that because I'm a Texan, my cultural competency with the complexities of New England and class and waspiness are like nil. I have no idea what I'm talking about. So if there's anyone out there who's from Connecticut and knows better than I do, like, I'm so sorry. But it's there's just so much of what's wrapped up in here that, yeah, it's just like you said, it just feels like it's clearly coming from a place that is not authentic as much as it is like extrapolated from a very narrow very short experience of the place. And and it's unfortunate because I think other than that, the movie is not particularly offensive in any way. Um, But, you know, like the story is not repulsive. There's, you know, there's not, it's not asking you to make any big leaps of faith, but there, there is this weird undercurrent of this story is also about race, but like not enough about race that we're really going to address it. And that always just feels icky. Yeah, and it even it's some at times, like in that uh, scene at Charlie's parents' house, it almost feels like a substitute for a more substantial conversation about racism in America mm-hmm. that could have been had but was not had. Um, and again, I think really when it comes down to the actual plot machinations of this movie, the issue is class much more than race, but they don't address that either. So then it becomes a like, okay, so there's two big issues here, neither of which you're you're really dealing with well but one of which is more of the hot button topic. So that's what you're trying to make it about when it probably doesn't need to be. Yeah, I mean, it was a movie that was not well equipped to have this very complex conversation about the fact that like all the people portrayed in this movie have white privilege to a certain degree, but amongst themselves, they have their own hierarchy because white supremacy puts upon all of us this sense of um, hierarchy and domination that we can't escape from until we dismantle it, you know? Thank you, Professor Walker. (laughs) I'm curious, what did you think of Daisy and Charlie, like, as a couple? I think I'm biased because I am not a fan of that trope in the 80s that also happens in Pretty in Pink, where the uh, interesting girl, interesting in a variety of ways, falls for the more boring, buttoned-up rich boy. Mm -hmm. That just does not compel me, and I don't understand it, and I feel like it comes from, again, a place of class anxiety in the 80s where kind of class ascension still felt like the right thing to do and like a cool thing to do, Mm -hmm. even if you sort of felt bad about it in a way that like doesn't 
register the same way for us here in 2021. So I didn't find it particularly compelling, but you know, Julia Roberts is magnificent. So it's hard to deny her. What did you think? You know, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would because when he first appeared on the scene and she first started to notice him, I felt the same way, right? Like I was like, oh God, here we go with the preppy white boy and she's going to be totally enamored with him and then he's going to date her for a while and then do some dick move and like fuck everything up. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what happens. I mean, they have a big fight after his parents, but actually he genuinely seems interested in dating her. He genuinely seems interested in keeping the peace when they fight. Um, And in the end, he comes back and grovels, but like in a very calm way, he's sort of like, look, I'm still interested in being in a relationship with you and I'm willing to do what it takes to earn your trust again. And I was, I did not see that coming. So I was pleasantly surprised by that. And in the end, I sort of liked about it that you weren't sure what was going to happen. And like, no, they're probably not going to end up together forever. But you kind of went on the journey that she went on of like, oh, maybe this could be a little more than a fling. Maybe there's some substance to this guy. You're right. I do appreciate that the film kind of lampshaded itself from leaning into something like the pretty in pink problem where you have the Mm -hmm. rich boy fuck up and then the poor girl forgives him. Because there's a scene where, if you haven't seen this, um, Daisy sees they're they're all outside the country club looking in through the windows, you know, classic class, class warfare kind of stuff. She sees Charlie with this woman and she's like, oh, he lied to me. I'm going to pour fish in his Ferrari. (laughs) And she does, listeners. Boy, does she. But he comes out and he, he... explains that it was his sister um but he's not even that mad at her about it so there was there was kind of respect for me in that moment for charlie and also for the film for avoiding that very obvious turn he's almost sort of flattered that she would be that upset yeah Um, yeah. you know and i and i do think you know they establish early on she's sort of drawn to him because he's kind of a big talker and he makes stupid moves very boldly And then when she does that, he's sort of drawn to her for the same reason. So in that moment, I was like, oh, they might be really perfect for each other. Yeah, in fact, they might actually be the most successful couple of the bunch (laughs) in the long term. I doubt Jojo and Bill are still together. Maybe. I I would not be surprised to discover that they were in the middle of a custody battle. But I think Um, that takes us to our final couple. The movie knows that it's wrong, but they do it anyway. Right. Like, why? Why go there? Why have this 17 year old who's about to go to Harvard or Yale or whatever the hell it was? Like, why have her date this married father? It wasn't. We didn't need it. We really didn't. And you know what? I I was thinking because, you know, I'm in the mindset of, you know, in my dissertation, I write a lot about tropes and I write a lot about how tropes kind of iterate themselves from earlier um, literature, right? And I was really thinking about like, where does this freaking trope come from of this the smart girl, wise for her age, falling for this much older man? Like, where mm-hmm. does that come from? And I immediately went back to Little Women. I was like, oh, is this mm. a Joe March problem where films feel like they have to neutralize the smart, ambitious girl by having her fall in love with an older, mm. unattainable man? Like, this comes up in Juno as well. There's mm-hmm. a lot of examples of this. And it's very troubling because even though these relationships often fall apart, the fact that they're entertained by the film as a even briefly appropriate uh, first relationship for such an mm-hmm. intelligent young lady is extremely destructive. Yeah, there's this whole concept that's really pushed in this film of like, she is smart too smart for her age maybe and she's very responsible and she's very buttoned up but there's a secret wild side and here's where it comes out 
or like there's a secret curiosity about what it's like to not be perfect. And so she's going to find that by sleeping with a married man. And it's like, first of all, go fuck yourself. Like, that's so annoying. Just let her be smart. Like, God forbid. Secondly, there's a lot of ways to explore your wild side that don't involve walking headfirst into a relationship you know is a bad idea and that your friends are actively telling you is a bad idea and that you like and then being instantly shocked when it was a bad idea right like that's the other thing is that as soon as they sleep together his wife comes back into town and she's like oh my god i can't believe he just like went back to his wife like what did you think was gonna happen you knew what you were getting yourself into and there's just this element of dumbing her down for his scenes that feels so icky and so done yeah like it would have been much more interesting to see her sort of experience that attraction and intellectualize and acknowledge that it was wrong and mm-hmm. reckon with that, right? Instead of actually acting on it and sort of naively acting on it, it would have been really interesting to see her sort of realize like, oh, right, like just because I I feel compelled to do something or I feel drawn to something doesn't mean it's good for me. And that's a major like adulthood mm-hmm. milestone when you realize that. Right. You know? And it also, like if the point they were trying to make was – She's falling for him because he's not like the other guys in town. He is educated and interested in the discussions that she wants to have. And she's never really met someone like that. Like that would, I would understand that thought process. And like, that's why she's drawn to him. But they just kind of, that sort of seems periphery to me. Like she mentions that they like talk about a lot of stuff, but it more seems that he's giving her attention. And that's why she's falling for him than that she's like, you know, you don't see her like trying to connect with other guys her own age and failing to connect right. and then connecting with this guy. You just sort of were like, oh, this 17 year old decided it was time to have sex and chose really badly. And it just it just reinforces a lot of I mean, and in the end, like they don't end up together. And and so the film's not saying this is a good thing, right? Like it's not right. proposing that girls should do this. But but it's sort of saying to us, like, this is how these things happen, you know. These smart mm-hmm. girls, they fall into these dumb romantic choices, which, again, is something we see come up in these movies a lot, right? The girl who's book smart but street stupid. Right. And then you get her sister, the Julia Roberts character, who's the opposite, right? Like, she's not particularly smart. She says she's not going to go to college. She says she feels like she's stuck in the town. But she understands immediately what this married man is doing because she's so wise and she's slept with a lot of guys. So she gets it. Also, I have major problems with that because they kept bringing this up in the film, but we <laughs> only ever see her what I know like one guy. I know. They kept being like, she's such a slut who opens her legs for everyone. And you see her have a steady relationship over the course of several months in which they go on multiple dates before they sleep together and in which they early on have a conversation where she's like, don't cheat on me. Don't lie to me. We have to be honest with each other. And he's like, I agree. I want to introduce you to my parents. And everyone's like, "Ugh, Daisy's such a skank. Like, what the fuck? And listen, nothing wrong with being a slut. Like, you do you. I'm just about accuracy. Right. If you're going to claim that label, like... You know, live it. Yeah, and the only time I bought it, there's a scene where she's having a fight with her mother, where her mom's trying to say, like, stop dating this guy, you know it's not going anywhere, pick a nice boy in town and settle down, right, essentially. Um, And she is like, I know, mom, I'm not smart, and I'm not talented, and I'm a slut, and I'm blah, 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 blah. 
And it's established that her mother is religious. Her mother probably got married quite young, just like everyone else in town. Her mother is a local and is, you know, a hard worker, like all these things that maybe the girls are kind of fighting against. And so I get that, that maybe her mother's perception is if she's slept with anyone outside of marriage, she's a slut. Or if she's Mm. slept with multiple boys by the time she's 20, she's a slut, right? And so she's saying, I know that's how you see me, but that's not what's going on. Which like that scene, I was perfectly fine with, but all of her friends being like, ugh, we can't even take you to a bar without you having sex with someone when it's her friend who's literally having sex in the bathroom of their place of work well it's 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 a very clear message right which is like you can be a a a girl who is all up on your sexuality who is like all about being the sexual aggressor as long as you're basically married to the guy that's fine that's a very calvinistic (laughs) approach it's very new england so on some level it's a very smart reference but on the other hand like nah i'm not about that (laughs) well and it does have that that old you know, small town kind of vibe of if you're going to end up together in the end, we can turn a blind eye. But if you're Mm going to break up, you can't do that shit. You know, my grandmother came from a small town in rural Maine. And she used to say that the second baby takes nine months, but the first baby can appear anytime, (laughs) which was her way of saying at some point you're going to get knocked up and then you got to get married. So anyway, that's there was an interesting attitude towards sex in this movie. And they certainly they let the girls all have, you know, be sexual beings. They let them have different sorts of relationships with these guys. And it didn't the movie itself didn't shame any of them for it, which I really appreciated. I thought it was a pretty healthy viewpoint to be looking at these women. Um, but it, it the the mechanics of it were odd. It, it's probably a product of what you were saying about the 80s, right? Where it's like simultaneously the movie has to show this kind of like small town value, but also have these sort of like boss bitch, like, <laughs> you know, 80s girls who are like, we're changing the world at the same time. Right. You know, well, and and it, it doesn't quite thread the needle <laughs> on that. Where I think it did hit the mark was those female relationships. And, mm-hmm. and this is going to take us to the food, which we haven't really talked about. They all work at this pizzeria. There's an older woman who runs the pizzeria with her husband, but I'm not even sure he gets a single line in the movie. Like he just kind of stands (laughs) in the background. So, Um, and it's it's implied and at the end stated outright that this woman is really taking care of these three girls. She's taking them on essentially as her own daughters. She's teaching them the business. She's keeping an eye on them. She's helping them pay for college, all this stuff. And so there's all these scenes of them just like moving around each other in the kitchen at this restaurant at this pizza shop and i really loved that kind of women in the kitchen bonding and working together vibe i think that Mm. there's a real there's a real sense of that in the movie and then that's something that has a lot of importance to a lot of women and particularly to a lot of women in immigrant communities ethnic communities where you know you have to find ways to stay together and maintain your traditions and teach one another and all those kind of things and the kitchen is such a great hub for all of that there's this whole thing that actually the film does really well in the screenplay where um, Kat uh, accuses Daisy of being so slutty that maybe she should ask men to pay for her services, right? Which is a completely unfair statement for reasons we've already discussed. Not that there's anything wrong with getting paid for your sexual services. That's a whole other thing we can talk about on a different episode. But then later, uh, the man, the married man who Kat was having an affair with, um, there's a moment where he gives her money for her babysitting services after they've slept together. And there's a clear resonance there with Kat realizing that, well, I accused my sister of getting money for sex and now I'm getting it. Or it feels mm-hmm. that way. And then later, after that, Lorna, the, the woman who owns the pizzeria, pulls her aside at Jojo's wedding and says, here's money for Yale. Like, I think of you as my daughter and I want you to have this. Like, you can pay me back, but 
it's my like gesture to you as my kind of spiritual child. And I thought that that was probably the best thing in the screenplay that they really hammered home that at the end of the day, it's this sort of like matrilineal relationship that mm-hmm. matters the most and this kind of sisterhood amongst these girls and that 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 kind of issue that Kat had with money could be healed by that relationship. I thought that was really lovely. Yeah, no, that was a that was a really nice way to turn that around on itself. And I do think for the places the movie faltered, I think the last few scenes are really strong. I think they, they did sort of get the themes really on point by the end. Um, the, you know, slight reconciliation between Daisy and Charlie at the end is really lovely. The, you know, ending it on the wedding when you started it on the wedding, like, makes really good narrative sense. The, you know, it ends with the three women out on a balcony reflecting on what just happened over the course of the day um, and looking ahead. You know, it really, it, I think it gets it in those last couple of scenes really strongly in a way that maybe it loses it a bit in the middle. Okay, and I want to say this about the screenplay, too. The part of that, part of this is related to this middle issue. okay. So the film is called Mystic Pizza, which, like, I get it. That's the name of the shop. The town is called Mystic. All of these things are very evocative. <laughs> but is it a fucking metaphor, Eliza? Is it? Because if it is, I don't know what it is. And I really want it to be a metaphor, and I wanted it to have been a metaphor <laughs> for something about their relationships. But I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. Do you know? <laughs> you know, I think this is one of the rare cases where I feel like the metaphor should have been stronger. <laughs> You know, so normally I'm watching a movie and I'm like, oh, we get it. That wasn't subtle. And this is one of the few times where I think they could have leaned into it more. Um, I do think the idea pizza or the pizza shop in particular is this safe space for these women and it's this communal space for them and the things that they learn from this mentor of theirs you know, really guide them through a lot of parts of life. You know, I think it's there um, and, you know, and they've got the, the small town struggles are exemplified by the pizzeria having some financial troubles but then this food critic comes by and he loves the pizza and he talks about it on tv and so it's implied that suddenly they're going to get a lot of um, business which incidentally is what happened to the actual mystic pizza place in mystic connecticut after this movie they like get lines out the door it works as a sort of central hub and central theme but they don't use it enough. I think if one or two more of the like the arguments or the reconciliations between the girls had happened at the pizzeria, that could have been powerful. I think if at any point you'd seen the three of them eating the pizza, that would have been helpful. You don't really get that. That would have been nice. Um, you know, so so yeah, I think they could have leaned into it more, but I think it's there. I think you're right. You gotta dig for it more than a normal romantic comedy. Maybe that's why I resented it, because I had to actually think about it and you Ugh. elucidated it here perfectly. Um <laughs> I I guess like we can just be thankful that at no point, because I swear to God, Eliza, in that last scene where the three girls are on the balcony and Jojo goes, But seriously, what is it that Lorna puts in that pizza? <laughs> I was so ready for one of these women to say, it's love, it's friendship, it's us. And they did it, and thank God. <laughs> All right, uh, every week we like to take some time to thank our patrons on Patreon who chose this theme. Thank you so much. We get to think about food. God bless your souls. Um, we especially like to thank our romantic leads, who are Bob, Esther, Ian, and Trey. Um, you know, you're really what makes our pizza special, so... Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, join us on social media. We had a whole pizza party the other day to get us in the mood for our food month. So go check us out on Instagram. There's some fun pictures that we left behind for you. And Mm -hmm. if you want to support us, check out Patreon. All right, Eliza. So Mystic Pizza, Uh, winning recipe, maybe not. Do you have an antidote? 
I do. Um, I've got two. The first is that watching this movie just really made me want to watch My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Mm -hmm. I feel like so much of what I felt was missing from this movie is in that. And so much of what I liked in this movie is also in that. Especially those scenes where they were sort of all in the kitchen working together. Like it really made me think of the female dynamics in My Big Fat Greek Wedding between all the different members of the family. But that movie has that authenticity that this one doesn't where you're like, oh, someone wrote this about their actual life and their actual crazy family. And it's got those particulars that we're always asking for, those specific even the ones that are a little bit weird but they like you know add spice to the pizza sauce um so that really just like for me personally i think i'm gonna go watch my big fat greek wedding tonight because i love that movie <laughs> uh the other thing is thinking about that sort of warm feeling you get in the kitchen one thing that i've been watching lately which i cannot recommend highly enough to anyone um is the new show on netflix nadia bakes which features nadia hussein from the great british baking show and it is her latest show, and it's just this very sweet, wholesome kind of thing. She's making various baked goods, and she talks about what she likes to cook for her kids, what she learned to bake from her parents, what she likes to bake when she gets together with her sisters. You know, it's got a very sort of family vibe. And the best thing about it is the final scene of each episode, they pull the camera back, and you just watch her and her crew all eat whatever she just baked. And it's super cute. And very sweet. And she talks a lot about the importance of food in her family relationships and her relationships with her sister and her friends. And it just like you walk away so warm hearted and happy after watching it. If that's what you need right now, go watch Nadia Bakes. It's so lovely. Um, This is a little bit off the beaten path, but I have to say that like talking about food gives me an opportunity to talk about many of my favorite topics and many of my favorite properties. So I want to recommend one of my favorite films of all time, probably my top in my top three. And it's the 1985 Japanese film Tampopo. Uh, and here's why. <clears throat> it, is a, it is also a film about a scrappy gang of people who try to make a, a really excellent restaurant more famous than it is. Uh, and it involves like many of these vignettes um, about people in Japan uh, in, in their relationships with food. It is so funny. It has several little love stories. The central love story is my favorite. It's about, you know, this kind of like cowboy trucker who rolls into town and helps a woman turn her ramen shop into the bang up success that it needs to be. <laughs> and their love story is just like delightful and sweet. But it's also a love letter to film uh, because every vignette is a sort of riff on a different film genre. It's funny. It has so much heart. It's just filled with food porn. And it's one of my favorite things in existence, uh, Tampopo. All right. Well, um, I hope everyone enjoyed this little slice of life this week. Mm. And I hope you will join us next week for whatever we're cooking up then. Yeah. New recipes, new foods. Yum, new yum, bad yum. food puns. So much to look forward to. <laughs> Come on back now. Thank you for listening to the Romcom Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further, you can become a patron at patreon.com/romcomkilljoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog, and the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember Killjoys. Don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a rom-com. Not us. Not anyone. See, See you, you next time. time.